Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now to the part of our worship where we continue to worship you by attending to your word and attending to the preached word. Um, You know the needs of everyone present. Um, We ask that you would minister uh, to each one according to their needs. And such is a God, such is a God like you, that you can do that readily and easily. Um, Minister your word to us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have a question for you. Have any of you ever talked to a mayor or had a conversation with, like, the mayor of Fort Wayne while he was currently mayor? If you have, just raise your hand. Okay, a few of you. All right, good. Uh, what about the governor of the state? Have you had a, anyone ever had a conversation with the governor, sitting governor? Okay, one. Uh, and uh, what about a sitting president? Ever shaken hands with a sitting president? Or had a conversation with a sitting president? Paula? No, okay. <laughs> no, okay, I was just curious. Uh, sometimes leaders are somewhat inaccessible. Um, got to make appointments and so forth. Um, the remarkable thing is that the God of the universe, the creator of all creation, of everything, um, the one who sustains and controls everything, is imminently accessible. He is not inaccessible at all. Um, quite the opposite. And one of the things that Psalm 139 shows us is that God is and always has been your closest companion. God is and always has been your closest companion, uh, whether you realize it or not. Uh, we're gonna, I'm breaking this message up into two parts. Uh, we're going to talk, first of all, about the demonstration, how Psalm 139 demonstrates that reality to us. And then the second part is how we respond to that truth, that reality that God is and always has been your closest companion. So in the first part... Um, there are three truths that this psalm brings out. Uh, there's many truths. We're going to summarize them under three truths. And the first one is this, God's complete knowledge of you. God's complete knowledge of you. From verses 1 through 6. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. God's complete knowledge of you. Uh, The psalmist here, by the way, I'm going to refer, we're told that uh, it's a Davidic psalm, so it was written by King David, so I'll refer to either David or the psalmist or the author or whatever, they're all the same person as we work through this. So David talks about the fact that the the Lord thoroughly knows him, and that's true of all of us. Um, Lord, you have searched me and known me. The Lord has searched you and he knows you. He knows when you sit and when you stand. He knows your thoughts from a distance, and the idea there is not that he's distant from you, but the idea is that he knows your thoughts before you even think them. He knows the thoughts that are in your subconscious before they even arise to your conscious uh, mind. Um, He knows your travels. He knows when you rest. He knows where you rest. He knows all your ways. He knows all your words before you even speak them. 
says, you encircle me. You have placed your hand upon me. And in some, you know me thoroughly, is what David says. You know me completely and thoroughly, and that's true of you. The Lord knows you completely and thoroughly. In fact, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. So God's complete knowledge of you. The second truth is this, God's constant presence with you. God's constant presence with you. Verses 7 through 12 talk about this. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God's constant presence with you. Where can you hide from God? Where can you go that God is not? There is nowhere. Not in heaven. He's already there. You go down to Sheol or the lowest parts of the earth. He's there. He's not in the east. Is that the east? (laughs) Thank you. Okay. If you go all the way to the east where the sun rises, he's already there. You go all the way to the west where the sun sets, he's already there. And not in the darkness. You can't hide from him in the darkness. He has night vision. All right. Even the darkness is as light to him. He is always with you. Now we talk about, we talk sometimes about being with someone in spirit. Okay. When you go to this competition, when you go to this, when you go to this vacation place, I'll be with you in spirit. Of course, we aren't really with them. Our spirit doesn't even go to be with them. What we mean is, you know, we're rooting for them. We're thinking about them type of thing, but we're not literally with them. We're not literally with them. Even our spirit isn't with them. Our spirit is tied to, your spirit is tied to your body. Where your body is, there your spirit is. But with God, it's literally true that he is always with you. And we can say literally in spirit, for God is spirit. But he is literally, and I'm using that word literally in a literal sense, he is literally with you all the time, everywhere. God's constant presence with you. So God's complete knowledge of you, God's constant presence with you. And third, the passage talks about God's careful design of you. He talk, uh, David talks about God's careful design of you. Verses 13 to 18. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Lord, how, God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. So I want to break this down just a little bit. Uh, God's careful design of you. First of all, letter A, he planned your life. He planned your life. Verse, uh, verse 16. Yeah, verse 16. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Before you, before you were even conceived, God had your life laid out. All right? He knew what your life would be. He gave you, you know, we talk about choice, and we do have a lot of choice, and we do have a lot of freedom, but when you think about uh, all the circumstances of your life, a lot of them are not by choice. 
the country where you were born, the era you were born, where you were born, the, uh, the parents God gave to you, even your personality and so forth. A lot of these things were not determined um, by you. He planned your life, letter B, he made you and gave you life. He made you and gave you life, verse 13. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15, my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. They were not hidden from you because you were involved in that process. You formed me and gave me life. I want to take just a moment and talk about abortion for just a minute. The sermon isn't about abortion, but... Since we're in Psalm 139, it's appropriate to talk about it here. This passage, verses 13 to 16, is one, of the, is one that indicates to us that abortion is wrong. Each pre-born baby is already, a human ba- is already a human being, created and designed by God. In the womb, God knows each person, has designed each person. Each is fearfully and wonderfully made. Look what the Lord says to the prophet Jeremiah. He said to Jeremiah, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I anointed you a prophet to the nations. God knew Jeremiah even before he was conceived. And certainly when he was conceived, when he was being carried in the womb of his mother, God knew Jeremiah as Jeremiah, as a human being. We talk about, parents talk about, you know, when the baby is born, getting to, finally getting to meet their son or getting to meet their daughter uh, at the point of birth. But God already knew them. <laughs> He knew them in the womb. He formed them and created them in the womb. Each baby in the womb is already known by God as Jeremiah or as David or as Abigail or as Julianne or or whoever. A baby doesn't become human when he or she is born. She is already human. And we do not have the right to end that life, that life that God has already created. To kill the baby in the womb is the same as killing the baby after it has come out of the womb is the same as killing a 17-year-old, is the same as killing a 50-year-old, is the same as killing a 93-year-old. It's, it's murder. Abortion is great sin. It's a great sin. It's a grave sin. And the fact that it is commonly done doesn't make it any less grave or any less wrong. And the fact that it is legal doesn't make it any less grave or any less wrong. And I want to say one other thing about this. Abortion is a great sin, but Jesus is an even greater Savior. Abortion is a great sin, but, a, but Jesus is an even greater Savior. Abortion, while a great sin, is not an unforgivable sin. And the reason I bring this up is because I don't know everybody's history, and it's possible that someone in this room, or more than one of you in this room, either has had an abortion or has encouraged an abortion or, or what have you, and you feel terrible about that. Any who have participated in the abortion of a baby, whether a mother or a doctor or a nurse or a husband who has pushed for it or allowed it, or parents who have pushed for it, if they turn to Christ and confess their sins, the blood of Jesus covers that sin. They can be forgiven. I've read of abortionists who have come to Christ. One abortionist who had his hand involved in over 22,000 abortions, and he comes to Christ. Can you imagine the... The guilt, another, another guy um, involved in one way or another over 80,000 abortions, 80,000, the blood of 80,000 babies in one way or another on his hands. One of them was his own child that he performed the, uh, the, 
He took the life of, and he came to Christ. Can the blood of Jesus cover that many sins? What do you think? Yes, absolutely. According to 1 John 2, 2, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. He gave himself as a propitiation for the sins of the entire world. Abby Johnson was the director of an abortion clinic. Then she realized the truth of what she was doing, killing babies. She says, I realized that in my eight years I had helped facilitate over 22,000 abortions. I didn't know how to live with that kind of burden, how to live with that kind of sin. And quite honestly, I didn't know if I wanted to. In that moment of hopelessness, just crying out to God, he spoke to me. He said, Abby, there is absolutely nothing you can do to make up for what you have done. And because of my grace and my mercy to you, you don't have to. You don't have to. Abortion is a great sin, but Jesus is an even greater Savior. He came for all sinners, and no matter how heinous the sin or how many the sins, they can be forgiven when sinners turn to him in repentance and faith. I just wanted to say something about that because our passage touches on that in Psalm 139. But now back to the gist of what we were talking about. God's careful design of you. We've talked about, first of all, God planned your life. He made you and gave your life, gave you life. Let her see. He did a good job. He did a good job. According to verse 14, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. Um, This doesn't just apply to David. He wasn't some kind of super specimen of a human being, but this applies to all human beings. Letter D. He thinks about you all the time. He thinks about you all the time. And someone's going to, someone might think, oh man, this guy, this is man-centered preaching. This is man-centered preaching, talking about how God's constantly thinking about us and putting human beings at the center instead of focusing on God. But that's what this passage talks about. Look at verses 17 to 18. God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend. In other words, it's staggering for me to comprehend how often you think about me, how vast your thoughts to me are, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. What, what thoughts are we talking about right here? Well, in verse 16, he's talking about how God has planned, has laid out your days. So he's been thinking about you. That's the thoughts he's talking about. In verse 17, how many are those thoughts that you have towards me? How many are those thoughts, how, how often I am on your mind? That's the gist of it. God thinks about you all the time. You are always on, your, on his mind. Another verse, Psalm chapter 40. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Um, One writer says, Perish the thought that God's notice of us consists of occasional bits of attention in a passing mood. In other words, it's not like God occasionally thinks about you. Oh, yeah, you know, I remember. I remember Connie. Yeah, I remember when she was born. I saw her at her 17th birthday, and I haven't touched base in a while. That's not the way God is. You are always on his mind. According to this passage, according to Psalm 40, he is always thinking about you. God is and always has been your closest companion. No one knows you better than, uh, no one knows you better than him, not even your mom, not your spouse, not your best friend, 
not even your pet. No one has logged the hours with you that he has, not even your mother, your father, or your spouse of 50 years. He has not missed a minute of your life, and he's paid attention every single step of the way. Beyond that, he drew up the blueprints for you. He designed you, made you, shaped you. He laid out your days. He stitched you together. He molded you in his hands while in the womb. He formed you. He planned your life. He gave you life, and he is your closest constant companion throughout life. That's, that's the reality. That's the reality. Then we move on to uh, our responses to that reality. How do we respond to that reality? Well, there are some poor responses. There are some poor responses. The first one is to disbelieve it or ignore it. Ignore the reality that God knows you. Ignore the reality that God created you and loves you. Ignore the reality that he is with you all the time. Many are like the deists, the deists of old. You know, they believe that God started the earth spinning, he created the earth, started the earth spinning, and then he backed away, and he doesn't really check in too much on what's going on on planet earth. Many believe that God is distant and absent. And he's certainly not their closest companion. Then, of course, there are some who are atheists. Uh, They don't believe in God at all. So they believe that if they're in a room by themselves, that there isn't any possibility of maybe angels or demons being in there. And certainly God isn't there because they don't believe in God. To them, God is non-existent. He had no hand in their creation and has no hand in their lives. There are also what we might call people who are practical atheists. Um, and a lot of Christians fall into this category. They believe in the, um, they, they profess that God is omnipresent, that God is always with them, but they live as if God were not present and as if God were not watching, as if they live in total unawareness that God is always with them. Another poor response is to resent and chafe at it. There are, no, there, there are those who know there's a God, a, a God like this, who is all-knowing and always near, and they don't like it. They want their independence. They want their freedom. They don't want to be beholden to him. They don't want him watching, looking over their shoulder as they see it. So they push him away, or they replace him with gods of their own making. Or they rail at him, or they slander him, or they think him, portray him as some kind of a miscreant or a monster. There are some whose creed about God boils down to two somewhat inconsistent points. They say, there is no God, and I hate him. (laughs) They hate the God that they don't believe in, that they don't think exists. Uh, I hope that none of those poor responses are your responses to God. For one thing, they're fruitless. Uh, In the end, all of them, if maintained, lead to trouble, condemnation, judgment, and misery. Let's focus, though, on the proper responses. What are the proper responses to the fact that God knows you completely, that he is always with you, and that he has carefully designed you? What are the proper responses? In fact, I could generate a whole list of proper responses. The scripture is full of them, but I want to focus in on what Psalm 130, on the responses that Psalm 139 points us to. And there are three. The first is this, let this knowledge fill you with awe and wonder. Let this knowledge fill you with awe and wonder. Some of you are dazzled by beautiful sunsets. I know this because you tell me about it, Um, which is a good thing. Uh, Different ones. Talk about the sunrise or the sunset. Um, 
And what happens? You, you run outside. I'm imagining what happens. You run outside. You grab a camera or a phone and you take a picture of it. You just stand there and just you're still before it. And you just kind of take it in. Just kind of take in the beauty of the sunset. Sometimes you'll tell someone else, come on outside, come on outside. You've got to see this sunset. This is incredible. Um, you take it in and you let, what do you do? You're letting it fill you with awe and wonder. You're letting it fill you with awe and wonder. I've been to Niagara Falls a couple times. I think a couple times, maybe three times. I don't know. I'd love to go back there. Why? I, I just want to see the falls again. There's nothing else to do there. <laughs> But I, just, I, would, I would love just to see the falls. Let it fill me with awe and wonder. In the same way, let this truth of God's comprehensive knowledge and constant presence and careful design of you sink in. Soak in this truth. And this is what we're doing right now. We're soaking in this truth, aren't we? We're, we're, we're meditating on this truth. And let it fill you with awe and wonder. Now, this is what the author of the psalm did. He meditated on it. I mean, he took, he took time to write about it. So he's, he's, it, it fills him with just, he's astonished. Look at verse 6. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Look at verse 14. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. Verse uh, 17, how vast is, your, is the number of your thoughts towards me? If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. Let, let the character of God, let who God is to you amaze you. Let it fill you with awe and wonder. Let the knowledge of his closeness to you fill you with awe and wonder. Take it in. Sit still before this truth. Take it in. Sit still to appreciate the reality of this, ma- of this wonderful God, this great, powerful God, and how much he loves you, and how much he cares for you, and how, uh, how um, entwined he is in your life. By his choice. By his choice. Well, let's, let's read the rest of the psalm to get two other responses. I want to back up to verse 17 and then read through the rest of the psalm. Um, God, how difficult your thoughts are for me to comprehend how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Now, as you read through the first 18 verses, all this wonder and admiration for God, and then you get to verse 19, and there's a certain, uh, maybe not for you, but for me there's a certain jarring effect. (laughs) All right? All right, God, you're so wonderful. Kill all these sinners. (laughs) God, please kill the wicked. I hate them with extreme hatred. David here is talking about men, just so you know. He's talking about human beings, about hating other men. Um, And we're going to talk about how the New Testament teaches us that we should love our enemies. But let's let's just sympathize with David just a little bit. Let us, first of all, note that these are 
enemies. And they're not, first of all, David's own enemies, all right, but God's enemies. They're people who are wicked and violent and deceitful and rebellious against God. David counts them as his enemies because, first of all, they are God's enemies. That's why David counts them as enemies. David doesn't primarily hate these people because David is naturally hateful. He hates them because of his zeal for the Lord. He hates them because of his zeal for the glory of God. It's like a husband who is not overly fond of the person who might attack and criticize his wife on social media or whatever. Or it's like the siblings who rally around their little brother when he's being bullied. But David here is doing more than defending the Lord. He's aligning himself with the Lord. What he's doing is he's making clear that in a world between right and wrong, he is on the side of right. In a world where there is God and there are enemies of God, he wants it to be known that he is on God's side. He's declaring his allegiance to the Lord. He's declaring his allegiance to the Lord. He's aligning himself with the Lord. So, number two, there's a lesson to be learned here. Align yourself with God. Align yourself with God. In this world, there is good and evil, and David is making it clear which side he is on. Look at these verses in that sense. In that sense. Though they may be powerful, he will not align himself with those who promote wickedness. Though they may be popular, he will not align himself with those who mock that which is holy and that which is pure and that which is good and proper. And neither should you. You should not align yourself with people who mock the Lord or who flagrantly disobey the Lord. Don't align yourself with such people. Now, I'm not saying don't associate with such people. Of course, we are to associate. We are to love them. We are to witness to them. But there is also the principle about not being yoked with unbelievers and what that means in terms of marriage and what it means in terms of business and so forth. David so admires and loves the Lord that he cannot tolerate that which is at cross purposes with God. And he can't tolerate those who author evil and wickedness and so obviously and freely engage in that which displeases God. Now, the New Testament redirects his fighting spirit for us. We're to have that fighting spirit, but it's redirected. It, the New Testament redirects us by teaching us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Okay? And, and by teaching us that our struggle is not against people per se, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness, against Satan and his uh, evil angels, his fallen angels and his demons and so forth. Why? Because the, those who don't yet know Christ are under the sway of the evil one. Our goal is to bring them out of the blindness, out of the captivity, by sharing the gospel. So that, in the words of Colossians 1.13, they might be transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son, whom God loves. Which is what we have been, which, what, which is what happened to us as well. So the New Testament redirects our fighting spirit. We are not to hate people, even God's enemies. We are to love them, share the gospel with them, pray for them. But there is something in these verses that we are to hold on to, and that is David's hatred of sin. We're to hate sin. We should come against it. We should pray against it. We should work against it. We should hate it. When I was a teenager, there was a group called, a Christian, contemporary Christian group called Mylon Lefebvre, Mylon Lefebvre, something like that, in Broken Heart can't pronounce his name even though it was one of my favorite groups 
Um, but they had a song called, uh, it was very simple, Love God, Hate Sin. Love God, Hate Sin. And I love that song. And it's got a great message. Uh, the message is, love God, hate sin. That's the message. And the two go hand in hand. Uh, the more you love God, the more you will hate sin. And I mean hate it. Not the sinner, but the sin. And you hate it because it is so anti-God. The less you hate sin, the less you love God. The two go hand in hand. So the question is, do you hate sin? Do you detest it? Do you consider sin your enemy because it's God's enemy? Let's move on to our third response. It's this, invite God to inspect you. Invite God to inspect you. Verses 23 and 24 again. Search me, God, and know my heart. Look back at verse 1 where it says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. So David knows this, and yet he invites God in verse 23 to search him again. Why? Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. See if there is any sin lurking in me. Why? So that I might get rid of it. So that I might get rid of it. I want to get rid of it. You see, David is not only against evil on the outside, he's also against evil on the inside. He's not only against sin on the outside, he's against sin on the inside, and yet he knows that it can lurk in his heart. And so he invites the Lord to come and test him and show him where he might, where, where he falls short because he loves the Lord so much. These are good verses to pray. These are good verses to memorize. I've memorized these, not in this translation, but another translation. And, uh, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a good thing to pray to the Lord on a regular basis. Another set of verses, you could jot this down, is Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 12 to 14. Psalm 19, verses 12 to 14. It's a good prayer. How can I know? How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Lord, keep me from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a good prayer. Inviting the Lord to search you that you might turn even more from sin, that you might the holier be. And if you pray these things sincerely on a regular basis, the Lord will answer. The Lord will answer. God's complete knowledge of you and his constant presence with you and his careful design of you are all good news in Jesus Christ. So rejoice in the closeness of your God, in his complete knowledge and love of you, in his constant presence with you. You know, he says, I I will never leave you or forsake you. That's true and in his careful design of you and the eternal plans he has for you. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're missing out. You're missing out because his knowledge of you and his constant presence with you and his careful design of you will all weigh against you in the day of judgment. They'll all weigh against you in the day of judgment. It is far better to turn to him in repentance and faith. He has no desire for anyone to be condemned. He has no desire for anyone to go to hell. The, we talk, I think I mentioned last week, you know, the, the hell was made for the devil and his angels. That's who it was created for, Matthew twenty-five forty-six. It wasn't made for human beings. But those who imitate the ways 
of the devil and don't submit to the Lord, that's where they end up. He has no desire for you to be condemned, but he will not force you to embrace the Lord Jesus as your Lord. The decision to embrace Jesus as Lord is your choice. But the consequences of your choice, that's not up to you. He's made it clear what the blessed consequences of faith are. And he's made it clear what the horrible consequences of unbelief are. The choice is yours, but not the consequences that go with the choice. But rejoice if you are following the Lord, if you're walking with the Lord, and how much he loves you and how much he cares for you and how he is always with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, is what the Lord says. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to sing a uh, song in response to this. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us, your kindness to us, your love for us, the fact that you are always with us, um, and that you've, you've even magnified this in Jesus Christ. Yes, you know us, and we think, oh, he knows me, and so... He might not want to be with me forever. And that's, that's so opposite of what Jesus indicated. Jesus said, I go away and prepare a place for you, and then I'll come back and take you to be with me forever. Um, we get the idea that uh, you desire to be with us and that you are transforming us. And we think about your careful design of us and how we've screwed it up in our sinful ways. We've sinned with our eyes. We've sinned with our ears and mouth and feet. We've used practically every part of our body to sin and rebel against you, screwed up the designs, and yet um, we're told that in Christ we are a new creation and that we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. We praise you for all that you have done. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be holy before you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.